Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We know that the premise of reality, the premise of Judaism, is the oneness of God. Not only that God is one, but there is no other power other than God. Many people believe in God, and they believe in other powers. So we can't do that. There's only God, and there are no other powers. So I would suggest for everyone to ask themselves, in addition to believing in God, what other powers do you rely on in your life? And to try to uproot that. Rabbi Cardozo once referred to this as radical monotheism, or the radicalness of monotheism, meaning to say that you have to be a bit of a spiritual warrior to go and uproot your beliefs in other powers. This was one of the biggest turning points in my own spiritual development. So why is there this illusion of many powers? Because God wanted to create free choice. Remember, the Zohar says that the Torah is the blueprint of the universe. So that first letter of the Torah is describing the entire universe. And it begins with the letter Bez. Now, the letter Bez is the number two. Why? Because... The Torah is alerting you to the fact that when you live in this dimension, you are going to encounter the illusion that there is more than one power in this world. And our work in this world is to take that base of Breshis, you ready for this? And to turn it into the Aleph, remember Aleph is number one, to turn it into the Aleph of Anochi, the first letter of the Ten Commandments, which contains the entire Torah. Do you understand how there's a journey from the base of Breshis, from the illusion that there's more than one power in this world, the first letter of this world is two, and then we evolve spiritually to the Aleph, to the oneness that God speaks out at Mount Sinai when heaven comes down to earth. But remember, that's not the final step. Us bringing earth up to heaven is the final step. It's very, very important. Okay. The great quest of our lives and of this world is clarity. We talked about the idea that the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez, which means duality. And that letter Bayes stands for heaven and earth, good and bad, body and soul, this world and the next world, the written law and the oral law, male and female, perhaps deepest of all, free choice, because I can do this or I can do that. Everything is contained within the first letter of the Torah. Now, I'll tell you something absolutely awesome. This is, I think, mind-blowing. Grammatically speaking, the letter Bayes 
has a dot in the middle of it. If you really want to get deep, you'll say the whole Torah is contained within the word Breshis. Breshis is contained within the letter Bays, and the letter Bays is contained within the dot in the middle of the letter Bays, right? <laughs> but what is that dot in the middle of the letter Bays? And now I'm going to tell you something mind-blowing, which is that if you look in a Chumash, in a printed edition of the Torah, you will see the dot in the middle of the letter base. If you look in a Torah scroll, there is no dot in the middle of the letter base. Grammatically speaking, it belongs there, and yet in the Torah scroll itself, it's absent. That's deep. That's deep. Because I just told you, everything can boil down to that dot, and that dot is there, and it's not there. Wow, what is that talking about? Well, on one level, the rabbis explain the letter bait to mean buy it. It's a play on words. Buy it means house. The idea is that this whole universe is a house that God dwells in. Okay? And that dot in the middle of the bays, Kabbalistically speaking, that's the Yud of Chachma, which stands for the Torah. It's the Torah coming down into this world. But God conceals his presence in this world in order to create free choice. Right? That's one of the levels of the letter Beit. Beit is two. I can do this or I can do that. That's free choice. And so God is absolutely here. That's the dot within the bait. But God conceals himself so that we have free choice, so that when you look at the Torah itself, which is the blueprint of reality, that dot is missing because God hides himself in order to give us free choice. I mean, it's awesome what is contained within the Torah and how the Torah communicates. It's awesome. It's awesome. That dot is there. Grammatically speaking, that's the rule and that's what we go by. It's there. And yet, when you look around you, how many people say, where is God? Why is that? So that we can find him. One of the all-time classic Hasidic stories, a child runs home to his dad crying, I believe it was one of the Rebbe's of Lubavitch, and says, we were playing hide and seek, and I hid, and none of the other kids looked for me. And his father started crying. He says, now you know how God feels. Right? God is hidden so that we can find him. Disconnection was built into this realm so that we can long and reconnect. Brokenness was put into this world so that we could reassemble it and reconnect. 
hiddenness is in this world so that we can expose it and reveal the presence of God. There are many ways to do it. This past Shabbos, we was really like an especially good davening at the Happy Minion. For me, anyway. It seems like for everyone, too. And sort of like there was so much spontaneity in the davening. So many new things were just sort of like happening. And it made me think of something that I heard from Reb Shlomo one time and apply it to this situation yesterday. We have two words that are very similar, simcha and sason. Reb Shlomo Karlobach explains is a planned happy occasion. Like for instance, you invite someone else to your simcha, right? There's a calendar date and a time when the simcha is gonna start. That's planned happiness. Sason is spontaneous joy, right? You don't know when it's gonna happen. That's sason. So I was saying that at the happy minion, you have every, every Shabbos is simcha because we've got a time when we all gather and it's simcha. But sometimes there's an additional spontaneity that happens within the simcha that turns it into sason. So you have sason and simcha together. And while that was going on, I was thinking about it. I was like, wow, this is sason within simcha. I was thinking, what if you add the gematria of sason and simcha together? What number are you going to get? And I realized that's got too many shins. You know, shin is the number 300. I'm not going to be able to do that in my head. So what do I go the opposite direction? One of the forms of gematria is called misparkatan, where you boil everything down to one number. You keep on just adding the numbers together until you have one digit left. And I thought to myself, Simcha and Sason, if you add them together, I don't even have to do the math. It's so obvious that it's the number one. It's going to boil down to the number one because joy reveals God. And in fact, it was a thousand and nine. And so here's how you do Mispar Kutten. Thousand and nine, one plus nine is ten. Now you have to add all those digits. One plus zero plus zero plus zero plus zero is one. Joy reveals God. Joy reveals the oneness of God. Joy creates expanded consciousness. When you see that there is no randomness, that God is guiding absolutely everything. He doesn't always give us what we want in the moment, but he's constantly giving us everything that we need. The Ari says, that all of the spiritual levels that he achieved, the upper, higher spiritual levels he achieved was through simcha. A lot of people don't understand the power of simcha. They think that it's sort of like, hey, turn that frown upside down, right? That it's just, and by the way, that's not a small thing. That's not a small thing. To be able to smile, to have a yafas panim, to have a pleasant face, is very important and it can change people's lives. A smile can have a very powerful effect. It's nonverbal language, it's soul language. Someone can see you smile and then all of a sudden they smile. So a smile is not a small thing. Also they say in terms of 
the brain, neurochemistry, that it triggers dopamines and actually it sort of tricks your body into being happy when you smile. Because it, it sort of like triggers these hormones. But I want to say something more. I want to say, as the Ari points out, that joy itself leads to expanded consciousness. Joy is an awesome, awesome, awesome tool. It's actually one of the rules of prophecy, believe it or not. That prophets couldn't achieve prophecy until they were in a state of joy. And that's why you'd have musicians playing for the prophets before they went into their, prof their prophetic state. That's why Yitzchak Avinu sends out Esav to go hunting for his favorite food before he gives the bracha. Not because he was hungry, because he wanted to experience something extremely pleasurable to bring him to that expanded state of happiness and prophecy to bring down the blessing that he was going to give. It's even said by Avraham Avinu by the Akeda. How do you know? What's the proof that Avraham Avinu was in a state of simcha as he raised the knife over Yitzchak? Because he heard the angels say, don't do it. That means he was in a state of prophecy, which means he was in a state of simcha. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Many, many stories are told of tzaddikim before they went into the gas chambers that said, okay, now we're about to give up our lives, al-Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name. Let's do it, b'simcha. And there are people who danced into the gas chambers. There are eyewitnesses that testify. Can you imagine these exalted levels? Exalted, 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 exalted levels, and you see it even until today. So, just in case you're wondering, let me explain it better. How can you be happy amidst tragedy? You can't be happy amidst tragedy. And that's not the point of what I'm making. So what do you do? What do you do if we say that a person has to be besim? So Reb Shlomo said something that solves this contradiction. He says the following. You can cry. You can cry. And you can experience sadness when it's appropriate. With the outside of your heart. But the inside of the heart always has to be besimcha. Because the inside of the heart is that direct connection to the higher light where you realize there's only good. We live in a world where there's still darkness and where there's still evil. It's, it's, that's not an illusion. You run in front of a speeding car, good luck. That's not an illusion. I saw something which absolutely blew my mind from the Mea Shaloach regarding the Paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer that remove the impurity of death. So we know just in terms of Jewish law, if someone comes into contact with a dead body, they're not allowed to bring a, an offering to the Holy Temple. 
So, so the way they would do it is by through the ashes of the red heifer. So the Mea Shaloach, the Yishbitzer Rebbe, explains on a deeper level what is the impurity of death. And this, like, is soul-shaking. He says, do you know what the impurity of death is? When a person can't change an event from their past, that event is called dead. And when they hold on to that thing that they can't change, that's the impurity of death. That is deep. That is deep. When a person holds on to that thing from their past that they can't change, that's the impurity of death. Now, the Ishpitzer goes on. And he explains that there's a difference between something that's dead and something that's sick. If there's something in a person's past or present that's still active and still can be repaired, you can pray and you can work for that thing to recover from its sickness and to be healed. But that's a different, that's a different thing entirely. You know, there's a story of the two brothers, Rav Zusha and Rebbe Limelech. And they were walking, and there was a woman, perhaps a woman of ill repute, as they say, standing on the street corner. And she wanted to cross over, but the, the, the road was very, very muddy, and it just, she, she couldn't do it. So Rav Zusha picked her up, and he carried her over across the street. And after he did that, the two brothers, two of the holiest tzaddikim ever, walked in silence for a period of time. And Rebbe Elimelech turns to Reb Zusha and said, how could you have picked up that woman and walked with that woman? And Reb Zusha says back to him, I put her down all the way back there, and you're still carrying her? Do you hear that? We carry things with our thoughts, and we hold on to things with our thoughts, and we have to put them down. You see, relationships evolve. When someone leaves this world, the relationship doesn't end. The relationship continues, it just takes on a different form. But then it becomes up to us to evolve into the new relationship. The soul is still with us, it's 100% still there, it's still interacting with us, but the relationship has assumed a different paradigm at that point. And it becomes up to us to adjust to that new thing. So when we put the memory down, that's very, very different from severing the relationship. We're not severing the relationship. We're continuing the relationship. 
but we're evolving into the present paradigm that the relationship is existing in, which is equally real. It just takes time to readjust to. I once thought about it in these terms. When my father, Oliver Shalom, left this world, he didn't go anywhere. I mean, God willing, he's in the highest places, but... You know, the, the Gomorrah gives us an amazing piece of imagery talking about the world of souls of our loved ones and our world. It's in Psachim. It says that there's, like, you know when you stack cups, one inside the other, that the next world is inside this world, like a cup being put into another cup. We can't see it. But that world is very, very close and actually intersects this world. We would be the bottom cup in this imagery. And then the cup above it comes down into that cup. It's its own discrete entity, but it's right there. And in case a person didn't get the point, the Gomorrah in the same line gives you another piece of imagery. That this world and the next world are as close as two hairs on the same head. I once heard Reb Shlomo console someone who had just lost their mother. And he said, you know, before, if you wanted to speak to each other, you'd have to call her or she'd have to call you. He said, now you're closer than ever because wherever you go, there they are. So when my dad left, my dad had so many different teachings, so much wisdom that he would share. And sometimes, often I'm in a situation and I think of something that my father taught me. And what I would like to suggest, and this is me talking, what I would like to suggest is that this is not me remembering him. This is him in our present relationship interacting with me. Do you hear the difference? The relationship continues. It just takes on a different form. You know, I'll share with you just because we're, we all know each other, we're a close group. I, I feel like I did more for my father's yurt site this year than I've done in other years. Maybe, maybe even the most. I don't know. It just kind of felt that way. And my cousin called me and says, I had a dream about grandpa, my father. This is a few days after the yard site where I really felt like, at least I had tried to really do something. She said, I dreamt that he was wearing a talus and he was studying Gomorrah. And he was so fixated, he couldn't even take his eyes off the page. It felt very meaningful. It felt very, very meaningful, especially coming just right after the yard site. Okay. I told you that the paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer, are removing the impurity of death. Now, amazingly, we have the death of Miriam in that Parsha. And the sentence that Moshe and Aaron are both destined to be nifter to leave this world as well. Our three greatest leaders, Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron, all either die or told they're going to die 
in this week's Parsha that begins with the ashes of the red heifer, which removes the impurity of death. Now, I want to talk about Moshe hitting the rock and to say some ideas that I think, well, they were, they were new to me anyway. So these came during the davening. So what I would like to suggest is how I began this talk, which is the greatest thing that we can hope for in this world is clarity. Right? Clarity would be that letter Aleph. Clarity is the Aleph of the word Anochi Hashem Elokecha, the first letter of the Ten Commandments, the Torah coming down from heaven. That's the letter Aleph. That's the letter, that's the letter of clarity. Remember, the letter Aleph is, consists of three letters. It's two Yuds and a Vav, which add up to the number 26, which is the holiest name of God, Yudke Vavke. And as much as the Torah is black fire on white fire, and the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez, what I'd like to suggest is the first letter of the Torah is really the letter Aleph, but it's a white fire Aleph. It's there. God fills and saturates every aspect of creation, but on the level of white fire. So we want clarity, but we see physicality around us, and this world wants to tell us that all that exists is this world. One of the names of this world that you find in the Sfarim Kedoshim, the holy books, this world is called Olam Hasheker, the world of lies. Why is it called the world of lies? Because it tries to convince us that this is all that exists. So then what is ultimate clarity? Ultimate clarity is seeing the oneness that truly exists and that the material world is just an outer garment in the oneness of God. As we've talked about in the past, this unbelievable imagery that the, I know the, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's quoted all over this farm. You know, if you look at a snail, a snail has this big shell out, outside of it. And the snail looks like a worm. It's kind of like slimy. It's slimy and wet. Like a, a snail leaves a trail on the ground, this shiny, wet trail on the ground. And yet, it has this hard, dry house on top of it, this shell on top of it. So it's very easy to think that this wormy, wet snail and this hard, dry shell are two different things. In fact, I never gave it much thought, but I would have thought that there's lots of empty shells on the seashore, and that when a wormy, wet shell is born, it kind of crawls around till it finds a, a shell that fits it and goes, okay, that's my new home. And then, you know, you've got a house, you've got a tenant, everybody's happy. But that's not what it is. The shell, which is hard and dry, is physically part of the snail. The snail is gushy and wet 
The shell is hard and solid. And it's one single creature. When the snail is born, it grows the shell. The shell is the snail and the snail is the shell. God fills this entire world. Physicality is just another emanation of God. It's all one. This world is just the shell of the snail, kaviyoho, so to speak. That means that when you're interacting with each other, when you're interacting with this physical realm, you are directly interacting with God. It's mind-blowing. All that exists is God, including the physical realm. It's just the outer garment. And then the Ish Kodesh, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, says the ultimate now. He says, do you know what the most outer garment of God is? What is the most outer garment of God? The Jewish people. In this world, the Jewish people are the ultimate reflection, emanation, and revelation of the oneness of God. So what if there was no more confusion? What if there was only oneness? And believe it or not, that's what was at stake when Moshe was told to speak to the rock. This is what was going on. Is there anything more physical than a rock, for goodness sakes? Anything that represents materiality more than a rock? You know, sometimes you want to communicate with someone and you get so frustrated and you say, your head is hard like a rock. The, the, the rock is the ultimate inanimate object. And what was supposed to happen? What, what was the great game-changing miracle that was supposed to happen and was so important to happen that when it didn't happen, God said, Moshe, you're not going into the land of Israel, you're not leading the Jewish people anymore, and you're leaving this world. It seems like such a minor offense. Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking to it. Didn't God say earlier in the Torah, hit the rock and water will come out of it? Now God says, take your staff, your stick, and speak to the rock? It's confusing. If he's not supposed to use the stick, why is God telling him to take the staff? But he's supposed to take the staff and then speak to the rock. What was the great game-changing miracle that was going to change all of history? What was supposed to happen? So the rabbis explained the Jewish people would have experienced the following in such a deep way. If a rock listens to the word of God. Who am I not to listen to the word of God? If a rock listens to the word of God, who am I not to listen to the word of God? In other words, all of physicality, all of spirituality, all of the concealed and all of the hidden and the revealed would have become one. You would have walked around the world saying this building is listening to God and that rock is listening to God and that fire hydrant is listening to God and that would have been a palpable, concrete way that we would have experienced the reality of this world and the oneness of God. There would be an end to confusion. 
Now let me tell you something deep. We have the four-letter name of God, the yud Vavke. Now I always tell you to picture it like a ladder. You've got the letter Yud at the top, underneath that, the letter He, then you've got the letter Vav. The Vav pulls down the light. The Vav is a straight line that pulls down the light into the bottom He, which stands for this world. We live in that bottom He. And the idea is that, you know, this world is filled with darkness, but all that light already exists. It exists one world above ours. And our job, says the Pischei Sharm, is to bring down that light, like the letter Vav goes down into the letter He, to bring down that light which is already there into this world. We're not waiting for the light. The light is already there. Our job is to pull down that light into this world. Okay. So the letter Vav represents that conduit where the heavenly realms come down below. Now let me tell you something else about that letter Vav. It also stands for the Rikia. The Rikia is translated in English as the firmament. It's the dividing line between heaven and earth. And guess what? The Rikia is when confusion starts to kick in. Because as we make the transition from heaven into earth, you're going from clarity to multiplicity, from oneness to the illusion of duality. Guess what else? In the Rakia, that line, which stands for the letter Vav, which stands for Moshe's staff, that's Moshe's staff. It also stands for the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, which is filled with different opinions. One rabbi says this, look in any Mishnah. Another rabbi says that. A third rabbi says that. Every Mishnah is a collection of different opinions. Guess what? In the firmament, which is that letter Vav, and remember, Vav is the number six, which stands for the six orders of the Mishnah. There is a yeshiva there. It's called the Mesifta de Rikia. That's where it's located. And that's where all the different multiple opinions that we experience in this world, all the confusion of what does God want from us, it's all sourced there in the Mesifta de Rikia, that yeshiva where multiple opinions in Torah start to percolate. And again, that's in the Rikia, which is the Vav of the Yudke Vavke, which is the staff of Moshe. What I would like to suggest is the following. Moshe stands for the written Torah, the five books of Moshe. What was supposed to happen here was that Moshe, who represents the written law, was supposed to take the staff which represents the oral law, and to make it one, to bring it all together. And now I'll give you what I think is a proof for this, if I can use that word. The rabbis teach the first luchos, the first set of tablets, 
that we received at Mount Sinai that was written with the finger of God had the entirety of the oral law on it and the entirety of the written law on it all together. And that's what got smashed. That's when heaven and earth came together. At that moment at Mount Sinai. And then it got smashed and everything, body and soul, became separated again. That was the moment of unity. And that was the moment where Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to bring or could have brought ultimate clarity back into the world where even a rock would obviously be listening to the word of God. And any separation or illusion that there's the physical realm and the material realm and they don't have anything to do with each other would be shattered. Any illusion that the material world, even amidst the concealment, isn't obeying precisely the word of God would have been shattered. All would have been clear. The oral law and the written law would have come together as one as they did in the first tablets when death left the world. And now isn't it interesting that the Parsha that contains this event has the paraduma, which is the removal of death from the world. Because that's what was taking place here. Ultimate oneness, which is the removal of death. I heard Rabbi Shmuel Diamond say something unbelievable. He said, do you know what the opposite of life is? So most people would say death. He says, no, no, no. Death is the opposite of birth. Do you know what the opposite of life is? There is no opposite of life. There is no opposite of life. It's all life. It's all oneness. Let me tell you how you see that in your own individual life. Again, let's take an x-ray of the soul and remember that each person is a microcosm of the universe. So contained within each person is the entire universe. Now, there's five levels to the soul. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you this model as the Vilna Gon, who is one of history's greatest Kabbalists, I'm going to explain to you the model as the Vilna Gon explains it, okay? So the base level of the soul is called the nefesh. The nefesh is keeping the organs going, it's keeping the blood pumping, Okay, above the nefesh you have the ruach. Now we're going to get more about the ruach later. And then above the ruach you have the neshama. Above the neshama you have the chaya and the yechida, which goes all the way up to the throne of glory, which means on a very practical level, people do not end at the top of their heads. This is very important. We are literally all giants, literally all giants. Meaning to say, every single person extends all the way up to the throne of glory. Every single person, okay? Now, I'll give you a helpful visual metaphor to understand that. The rabbis teach that the body is the shoe of the soul. I'll say that again and then explain it. 
The body is the shoe of the soul. What does that mean? Just like your shoe covers a very small part of your body, so too your body covers a very small part of your soul. So I heard this amazing TED talk from this doctor, Jill Bolt Taylor. She's a Harvard trained neuroanatomist. And she described a stroke as she was having it. Her brain could have been witnessing it from inside of her body, from this damaged standpoint. But that's not what happened. She saw her body from the perspective of this higher level of her soul. Now remember, there are aspects of your soul that are inside of you, and then the rest of your soul, the majority of your soul, is actually outside of you. It's one soul, and, and it's all attached. Now here's the striking visual. She said, I want to live. I got to get back into my body. But then she raised the following observation. How is this enormous soul going to fit in that tiny body? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. She saw it. She saw it. She saw it in real time. She saw how the soul is so much more giant than the body. And she was able to recover and, and lecture about it and, and share her experiences. And this is one of the most listened to TED Talks. And so the reason why I'm raising it right now is it's very, very consistent with, with the Jewish understanding of the soul. I heard this thought from Rabbi Green, and I was so moved by it that, that I said it at my father's hespit, at, as part of my father's eulogy. And I'm telling you this now to explain why all the action in a person is centered in the Ruach, that aspect which is sandwiched between our lower self and our higher self. So let me tell you what Rabbi Green said. He asked this amazing, 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 amazing question. Who are you? He says, you're not your body because your body stays behind after 120. He says, you're not your soul because your soul is a piece of God. So if you're not your body and you're not your soul, who are you? It's a pretty good question, no? And what's the answer? You are the sum totals of the decisions that you make during your lifetime. That's who and what you are. You are the sum total of the decisions that you make during your lifetime. Do you see now why the Ruach is the essential aspect of your soul and of your humanity? Because the Ruach, again, is that part of you that's positioned between your lower self and your higher self, where all the decisions are made. And when we stand before the heavenly court, after 120, it's really the bundle of decisions that we've made that stands to be judged. Isn't that fascinating? Now listen to this. The Ruach is you. You are the Ruach. This is where all the action takes place. Because that's where your consciousness is centered. 
That's where all the free choice comes in. In this part of our soul called the Ruach. You know, when God created Adam, it said that he blew a soul into his nostrils. And you know what word is used there? Ruach. Because that is the essential dimension that defines a human being. That's where the free choice lives. And if you think of this model, you'll see something very elegant and very, very beautiful. You are the Ruach. That means below you is your base physicality. That's the nefesh. And above you is the angelic aspect of yourself. That's the neshama. And the choices that you make are the intermediary between your higher self and between your lower self. So everything is actually centered in the Ruach. Now, if you know a little bit about Freudian psychology, it sounds a little bit like the ego becomes the Ruach, and it exists between the id and the superego, if that terminology is familiar with you. The id is the unbridled, wanting physicality that would be correlating with the nefesh. And the superego is that the conscience that a person has. That would be like your neshama. And you are in between. That is the ruach. Now, I am not an academic, and I haven't researched these things, but I have heard anecdotally that Sigmund Freud was very much influenced by Kabbalah. And if you think of it in these terms, you see that basically he just renamed what we've been discussing. I mean, it's literally a straight transfer, it sounds like, at least on the surface. Okay. So what is the goal of a person in life? Okay, I'm giving you a whole kind of Kabbalistic perspective. On, on how it goes. So now listen to this. Remember I told you it's, it's very beautiful and it's very sweet for heaven to come down to earth. If you can bring heaven down to earth, amazing. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. It's amazing. But our job actually is to bring earth up to heaven. Now I'm going to show you how that fits into the discussion we've been having. What's the baseline of the soul? That's the nefesh. That's what keeps the blood pumping and the organs working and everything like that. That's the nefesh. Above that is the ruach. That's where all the free choice takes place. Now listen to this. The Pischei Sharm, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, says it in these very dramatic terms. Our work in life is to pull the nefesh up to the ruach. Do you see how that's saying, bring earth up to heaven? Do you see how that's, these are all parallel. It's the same model. They're just using different terms, right? If you had columns of these models, you'd see they're all saying the same thing. We're just sliding between different terms. So bringing earth up to heaven is our daily job 
And the way it manifests itself within each one of us who remember is a microcosm of the universe is to bring our nefesh, our animalistic soul, through the free choices that we make on the level of ruach, up a level to elevate everything around us. i tell you something. When I heard this, this was maybe the scariest Torah that I ever heard in my life, which is, and it's relating to the fact that the nefesh is closest to the goof. The nefesh is that part of the soul which is closest to your physicality. So listen to this. It says in the Gemara that the soul leaves the body one of two ways. Either like a hair being whisked out of milk, right? A, a whisk is a kitchen device. It just kind of, you know, scoop it out. So a hair being whisked out of milk, that's easy. That's super easy. That's how, in the right time, you want your soul to leave your body, right? Then you have the other side. You ready like this? You ready for this? Like a thorn being pulled through cotton. You don't want that. You absolutely don't want that. That means literally the soul is being ripped from the body. You don't want that. Now, let's take it to the next step. Ideally, the soul is directing the body. The soul has the driver's wheel, and the soul is directing where the body goes. Or sometimes they say a horse and a rider. The rider is the soul, and the horse is the body, and the rider is telling the horse what direction to go in. That's how it should be. However, for many, many, many people, the horse goes wherever it wants to go. The body goes wherever it wants to go. And that means that the body is really calling the shots over the soul. Okay, now let's get to the scary part. After 120, after a person gets buried, for certain people, when the soul rises above the body, the soul has no idea where to go or what to do. Why? Because during its lifetime, you ready for this? The soul got brainwashed by the body. And now that the soul is on its own, it's not been a soul for so long and not acted like a soul for so long. It's acted like a body. It doesn't know to go up. And the person who that applies to, because their soul is their seat of consciousness, when they rise up, they have no, they are so horribly disturbingly confused. They don't know what to do and they don't know where to go. And so the reason why I'm telling you that right now is because you see that the nefesh is in close approximation to the body. 
And while the nefesh can tell the body what to do in terms of keeping the soul, keeping the blood pumping and the organs going and everything like that, the soul can be a very corruptive neighbor to the nefesh. The body can be a very disruptive neighbor to the nefesh. And the body can influence the nefesh and begin to brainwash the soul. So yes, that's where the seed of the Yetzirah is. It's in the nefesh. But then, you know, there are other places too. They say it's also in the left side of the heart. The left cavity of the heart. That's another location of the Yetzirah. And so the idea is in Shema, we say Bechol, which has two vases in it. It should just be spelled Lamed Vez. But it's, there's two letter vases in it. And the Gomorrah says that it really means that you have to love God with all of your hearts, plural. That a person has two hearts. On one side of your heart, you have your positive inclination. And on the other side of your heart, you have your negative inclination. And the idea is to serve God with one heart that all of the light in the right side of your heart should pour over into the left side of your heart so that it's not two hearts. It's one heart. You know, when a business is successful, you know what it does? It rents out its neighboring store, knocks down the wall, and now it's not two stores, it's one big store. Right? You want the right side of your heart, your goodness, to be a successful business that's expanding into the left side of your heart. So now it's just one big right side, one big source of light. Okay, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, everyone, for, for joining in. And once again, try to join the WhatsApp group because my email is still broken, so it's hard to send out this. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.